boom, boom. Okay, welcome everybody into Before the Crowd. Um, in this latest episode, I'm sat here with Jenny Watson. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. That's <laughs> all right, you're very welcome. Um, do you want to start off maybe by just telling us a little bit about yourself, kind of instruments you play, um, and kind of how you generally work as a musician in the industry, or what was the industry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so predominantly, I'm a classical musician, but playing saxophone, which normally people are quite confused by that idea of a classical saxophonist, because it's not something people really associate associate with classical music is saxophone. But yeah, saxophone and um, composing as well. So I'm a classical saxophonist and composer, but I play a few different instruments, violin, piano, flute, and try and incorporate that into my work in various ways. And so I perform as a soloist um, with my duo partner, my piano, pianist, and in a quartet. Um, and up until recently was doing quite a lot of teaching. Okay, so, great. Wow, that sounds, um, that sounds like a pretty busy, pretty busy schedule as well, I think. It's, uh, it's a lot to keep you busy. It is, because when you actually delve into it, um, there's quite a lot of facets underneath the surface of, you know, lots of fingers in, lots of pies, that kind of thing. Where do you think, like, the, the majority of your work was, was taken up? Were you kind of more focused on your duo or kind of where, where was it weighted? Wait, before March before. Yeah, when we had the music industry, you know. <laughs> and that all existed and we were all happy playing music. Um, yeah, um, I, well, it's funny time because the pandemic actually did hit at a juncture in my own life where, as you know, I had just quit a big uh, teaching job, uh, uni lecturing, um, which was taking up a lot of my time. Um, and I did enjoy it, but didn't think I was sort of straying away from my path of performing, particularly in the classical world. Um, so yeah, I was doing quartet gigs. So my saxophone quartet, we will go around and do um, performances in music societies mm. from down the UK, uh, festivals, um, sort of more classical music festivals, obviously, and um, some like background corporate gigs, that kind of thing. And with my duo, um, mainly what we do is perform recitals on cruise ships and we'd okay. just come back from one like a week before everything went crazy we were in Peru and so we came back from Peru and then things started to really blow up in Europe so Spain went on lockdown and we went down you know quite soon after that and there's all these stories about people being stuck in Peru so the timing of that was quite crazy um but yeah so quarterback gigs some cruise ship stuff but I had as I say, just quit this teaching job thinking, right, I need to do a lot more performing and composing, sort of get back to what I was really training for. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's, firstly, that's, <laughs> that story of nearly getting stranded in Peru, that's, um, that's not really something you hear every day. How did you get out of there? Like, you're able to catch a flight, I'm guessing, or what happened? We were really lucky of the timing, yeah. Um, we, as I say, we'd sort of heard... I sense awful now you look back we'd sort of heard of this thing called coronavirus and it was on the <laughs> tele while we we're on the ship and then we had a week no a few days in Peru when we got off the ship just as a bit of a holiday and it was starting to become more global we heard like there were a couple of cases in Lima where we were and we thought but no one really still knew the seriousness I don't think at that point 
And mm. so it was only when we got back, as I say, about a week later, suddenly it was exploding into, you know, everyday news in Europe as well. So we were just we were just really lucky with that. But um, a friend of mine wasn't so lucky. Um, he does cruise ships more full time as a sax player, playing in the orchestra on board, and he got stuck on a ship for a long time because uh, the ship itself went into quarantine. And then they were cruising around some of the U.S. ports. So the U.S. were really clamping down and not letting the ships um, disembark the musicians to send them home. And he's Australian. So for a long time, he was stuck in a cabin on his own, only allowed out twice a day for 45 minutes to walk around the deck to get his exercise. Um, Don't even know if he had a window or not, like a porthole. Not sure. Um, And then (laughs) so he got off the ship finally in the U.S., went into quarantine there, got flew home to Australia, got put in quarantine there. So it was months on end before he sort of saw anybody else, you know? Wow, it's crazy. Yeah, and it's, uh, as speaking of someone who's done cruise ships as well, like you never get a porthole. You never get a porthole <laughs> in your cabin, do you? <laughs> you never get a good one. Got to be very lucky or know the right people. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's weird how you said like it wasn't almost daily news and as I'm sure you know like ship internet or kind of that you're just a floating city yes and unless it's happening on the city it's not really a big thing like global news doesn't it it hits you at a delayed rate Um, absolutely yeah you live in a real bubble on a ship um hmm. one case in being I was actually I used to do a different job on the ships years ago I was in the orchestra so I was full-time on the ships and this was 2010 2011 and we had all the, the riots, the London summer riots. Mm, and yeah. I was away for all of that. And it was only years later that I really got to know the crux of what happened and sort of, as a composer, responded to it by creating a work. But it was like four or five years later because I just wasn't around. And there's so many global events that, as you say, it's this separate city, this separate bubble on a ship. That you feel so disconnected from the rest of the world. It's, it's very strange. Yeah, and I think I think there's positives to that as well, and because you find these, uh, you know, the musicians you play with, or you know, the actors, performers, or whoever, and you just find that you form these bonds of friendship, and like they're like siblings by the end of it, and you're just this this family, and it's amazing, you know. Oh, definitely. We used to say that you know, being on a cruise ship, your life events and those sort of relationships you cultivate, they're on this like fast track. You know, you can go. F- from not knowing someone to being in that sort of sibling relationship within a few weeks because you're constantly around people. You're living in the same room, which is tiny, eating mm. with the people, going to the gym with those people, sightseeing and being a tourist and rehearsing and being a musician. You're living your lives with these people. So everything is just sped up in terms of your connection with them. But so this, yeah. this and there's great parts to that as well, of course. That's really yeah. nice. <laughs> um, that you do build these great bonds with people and that's lovely and they exist to this day even though that's 10 years ago you know yeah absolutely it is it's really nice and it, it's something maybe people don't always get to experience like that because it is so fast-tracked but so like you obviously just mentioned working in the orchestra and where we've been kind of as orchestras have existed for kind of you know hundreds of years um i was reading today about the, the new york philharmonic orchestra they just cancelled their 20, 2020 fall season like the whole program. 24? Uh, 2020, the fall season this autumn. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Four years in the past. <laughs> that's, that's really doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah no we've had that happen as well with what we uh where we play is much obviously lower scale music societies but people months ago were cancelling their entire 2021 season so we had gigs in the diary for next year that were being mm. pulled before anyone really knew what was happening really wow that far in advance yeah and so instead of thinking oh we'll delay it or we'll see what happens we just pulled the whole thing and they were very apologetic and um i've got no uh no bad feelings towards the people that do that because obviously these music societies exist on very little money and very mm. um you know strong support from their um their audiences um and it's it's tough so i understand the decisions they have to make but for us when you're having you have very few gigs as a classical musician really mm, anyway okay. and to have them pulled 12 months in advance is just thing you're very unsure about what to do <laughs> oh yeah it's it's scary isn't it and i mean you say like maybe you don't get as many performances as a classical musician like on on a weekly basis kind of what would the average classical musician sort of expect to play yeah it's um it's an interesting question and i think to be honest it really depends where your focus is in terms of are you a, even sorry let's think about it in terms of what instrument you play even you know if you're a violin a violinist maybe you have a chair in an orchestra and that is your day job you know you could be in obviously one of the bbc orchestras or the Halle or manchester camerata something you know an orchestra that that is your full-time job um, as a flautist, there's only one or two, maybe three flute players in an orchestra. So if you're a flautist, chances are you're going to have a different job because only few people hold those chairs in the orchestra. So you might do more teaching or you might play in the West End. Um, but as a classical musician, someone like myself, um, for example, it's, it's so variable that it's hard to give an answer. Our quartet. <laughs> We gave three, um, three gigs over the space of two, two and a half weeks in January, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for a classical saxophone quartet, that was loads, you know, to have three <laughs> gigs in the, in the diary in January, uh, up and down the country, that's, that was a lot for us. So we can go from having quite a few to a few uh, quiet months, but that's our time for preparing new programs because you spend a long time building up new repertoire Mm. and putting a program together um and then touring that program much as perhaps someone would tour an album say you know yeah no absolutely and it i guess like you said like playing that amount in january i don't care who you are if you're playing that many gigs in january you're doing something right that's that's for dead season if you're, if you're doing that you're doing amazingly well <laughs> we were very lucky um yeah it, it's interesting how I guess people maybe perceive classical music today. And I think maybe a general consensus is that it is still these huge, you know, 30 piece orchestras like for the BBC and, and that's it. Oh, absolutely. And the size of it, as you say, the, I think people still see it as an elitist thing. And I say, when I say people, I'm very talking very generally here, but mm. that we do still have that problem of people seeing it as an inaffordable uh, night out, when actually a lot of classical concerts are way cheaper than um, any pop rock concerts, um, or just a meal out in a restaurant. You know, take, take the Wigmore Hall, they have been doing for a long time, and as far as I know, still do the five pound tickets for 
I think people under 30 or people under 35 or something. So you can go to the Wigmore Hall and see an amazing recital for five pound. But I, the number of people that know about that, perhaps, you know, or- I, did, I didn't know about that. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, I, and then lots, didn't. <laughs> yeah, so many people feel intimidated by classical music that there's so many conversations still happening about, right, what can we do about this? How can we integrate more? How can we bring our music to audiences in new ways? So it doesn't feel like this stuffy old school thing when it's really not. I guess it's cool that they're doing it to sort of the under 30s, under 35s and, and trying to get that younger audience in to, to give life to it and to keep it, keep it breathing, so to speak. Absolutely, um, because I think um, that is where we need to focus um, our attention on getting new audiences because, you know, a lot of the audiences that we have, um, the duo and the quartet, in, the, in these music societies um, are say above 40 on average you know in terms of their age um, people above 40 years old I would say and <laughs> we um, need to look to the younger generations because um, particularly when the funding for music in schools has been crumbling before our eyes over years um, and it's really difficult and now with the the back of the pandemic, meaning that there's lots of government advice saying when schools return, there shouldn't be um, choirs singing in assemblies, there shouldn't be big orchestras, there's a lot of worrying about what we're going to do about face-to-face -face instrumental teaching. So mm. if we're not building that groundwork with primary school and secondary school children to engage with classical music, then we're going to have to do it purely through the uh, engaging them in concerts. and that's difficult too especially when we don't have any right now yeah yeah 100 percent. and i i was reading today i, was, I think it was like in the guardian or something and just before this interview i was trying to look at like different venues and what they were doing and things and without that financial backing without you know the ticket sales um without the audience it, that that element of the industry like it could genuinely die a death but it's, it's something been around for hundreds of years and it's like wow is this actually going to be the thing that the kills that off. Yeah, well, the Royal Albert Hall was in real trouble. They were facing insolvency um, on their 150th anniversary. And luckily with the arts package that was announced the other week, um, hopefully they're okay now. But you know, when you think about the Royal Albert Hall and the Royal Opera House being in trouble, and the National <laughs> Theatre as well were in trouble, and you think if those venues are in trouble, what hope have the smaller ones got? Oh, absolutely. And I was trying to work out today uh, maybe you've heard something through the grapevine that I haven't because I was like okay well if we don't have an audience then like I've got some friends who work in ticketing and they're trying to work out you know like you sort of buy a zoom link or something but then you know what whatever it is but to see this orchestra performance I was like well how can you socially distance as an orchestra I mean yeah. it, would, it wouldn't really work would it there's um, a great uh, group Facebook group at the moment called Musicians Movement um, started or co-founded by a friend of mine, um, Phil Meadows, and there's a lot of discussion about that because people have been referring to the advice on the actual government website, which says wherever possible players should play back to back. Like, <laughs> okay, first of all, how are they going to see the conductor? Yep. <laughs> how is this going to work? Um, and talking about musicians as, oh, this team and this team, you think no one uses those terms. So there's lots of things that make you think, 
have they actually consulted musicians? And so there's a lot of anger about that, um, particularly talking about wind, wind instruments, brass instruments and singing. Mm. Those are three big things um, that people are talking about at the moment and people are trying to um, conduct scientific studies. The Vienna, Vienna Philharmonic have conducted a study and various other places um, to sort of see whether we pose more of a risk than other instruments. Um, and the government advice is talking about things like, oh, well, flutes are worse because they have this lateral transmission, i.e. you don't want to sit next to a flute. Well, that just shows a little bit of in ignorance because most of the air from a flute comes from directly in front of your mouth. It's still coming out that way, not the end of the flute. So if this is the government's advice and you're really sceptical about where they've got their information, then it just does not fill you with any hope. Yeah, it's it's really strange. But then even with I, I was talking to a friend about this, because like you said, if you're looking on government regulations, which makes perfect sense that you would, if you're touring or going between different countries or wherever, well, what you might be able to do in England might be very different to what you can do in, in somewhere else in Europe and different restrictions, different guidelines. I mean, yeah, I, I don't see how that's going to work. It, it seems like there should be one universal kind of um set of rules yeah for these circumstances as far as i know and it's so hard to keep up with the information it's it's changing <laughs> so quickly and there was something as of a few hours ago that i was seeing there was new information about cathedral choirs an injection of cash but not from the government and it's it's really hard to keep up with everything but as far as i'm aware at the moment the advice is um as long as there's distancing between people then 15 players in a room um which that's that's very small <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but then a friend of mine a colleague in the us he's been told he can have 22 um and some oh. people are saying they have to have plastic screens between people others not and oh it's it's a minefield yeah, definitely. Especially when you think of like you've mentioned the West End and mm. I mean, like you God, you know how how small some of those pits are. Um and like you're crammed, like I've gone to a couple and I've been really lucky to shadow some guys and I, I haven't played myself, um, I have to make that very clear. <laughs> but I've been able to shadow some guys in it and I'm like, you know, you just stepping over the instruments to get to your slot and stuff. It's like, they're not gonna put plastic screens down there or or distance because they can't. It's impossible let alone yeah. open the theatres in the first place. Well, that's it. I, I believe Broadway is still set to be shut for the rest of this year for a, for a start. So, wow. yeah, it's difficult. But, yeah, you were asking before about how um, uh, often classical musicians would, would play. And when I mentioned the West End, I'm thinking in particular about a few people I know that play the flute um, and to play in West End shows. And I'm thinking if, if that's the, the mainstay of their income, as well as teaching, and theatres are set to be shut for a long time, then how on earth are they coping, you know? Um, but then there was that announcement just the other day, I think it was with two days notice, the government said, uh, oh, theatres can reopen, but with, um, but if as long as you do it outdoor and everything's socially distanced. And so theatres yeah. are going, okay, that, that's, that's a good step, but you're telling this is on a Thursday to open on a Saturday? yeah how does that work <laughs> so, yeah it, it's all very confusing but one thing you mentioned earlier actually was the um zoom links um for concerts and looking into that as an option 
and uh, it's something I've been thinking about for sure because there's so much content um, around and a leading radio station who will not be <laughs> um, have suggested to the public of how to create your own classical music festival or concert at home you know set up the bunting get your picnic <laughs> out at home and and pick a playlist from youtube of pieces you like and i'm thinking this is all lovely advice but surely we really need to be helping musicians orchestras ensembles at the moment and if we can encourage people to be donating or buying a ticket even if it's a few pounds for a zoom concert that would make the world of difference because there's so many people we're, we're artists and we want to create we want to perform and so there's wonderful things happening online at the moment. People are really giving of themselves and creating these new projects. And, it's, and that's great. But there's therefore an awful lot more content online right now from musicians all for free. And we think if the one <laughs> income stream that we might be able to salvage here is minimum, like nominal price tickets for concerts online, and that's already perhaps being decimated by the amount of free content that really worries me. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And, you know, people who, I say people who maybe like haven't really gone to concerts much before or are getting exposed to this, why would they then, once this is over, want to go and pay for a ticket for something that they've been used to watching and listening to for free for, for so long? I mean, one thing, it's one, one thing I'm kind of struggling with, and maybe you could shed some light on it because I feel... And, you know, it's great when people are doing it, but you go to so many different charities or there's arts protests and I don't know how many charities it are uh, 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 that are set to collapse at the moment. The kind of music and arts based charities and donations, are there any particular ones you would maybe point people in the direction of? Or That is a big question and it's tough and I wish I had a better answer on hand. Um, but what I'd say is... It's like donating to any charity, you know, are you looking to support the, the bigger charities so that then that can trickle down? For instance, if you support the larger orchestras, those orchestras always have outreach programs where they will go into the community and work with young players and work mm -hmm. with their local community. So if the larger orchestras are supported, that trickles down into the local community. But they will usually be the ones to that will first receive funding from private donors, from people that just know about them more generally, or the government, whereas the smaller, either freelance individual musicians or smaller ensembles are likely to struggle a lot more straight away. Mm -hmm. It's up to you whether you want to sort of, you know, really make a difference in one person's or one ensemble's situation right now and seeking mm -hmm. them out or uh, trying to contribute to the, not the bigger picture, but I think you know what I mean in terms of... Yeah, absolutely. And one thing, like, if I were, if I were maybe to ask you, and this is not my opinion at all, but, you know, if someone were to say sort of, well, why should I donate to these orchestras and stuff? If they love music this much, why don't they do it for free? If it's their <laughs> hobby, it's their passion. Oh, well, that's the age-old question, isn't it? <laughs> and what do you think about that? Oh, there's, that's the toughest question that people can ask you because in your mind it's really obvious. But I was reading an article just today, actually, um, from the, because the associate director of the National Youth Orchestra of Britain, and uh, he was saying that we really have a responsibility as classical musicians in particular at the moment um, to be able to articulate better 
the answer to your exact question. <laughs> it feels obvious and there's so much that we could say, but to put it down into a one sentence is really difficult, you know? Um, but for a start, anyone that goes to the movies, you're listening to orchestras. You're yeah. enjoying classical music, and no matter what genre, I will argue that there's classical music in there to some degree. And that will be enhancing your uh, enjoyment of the film. And we're used to those sounds, but perhaps just not in the setting of going to a concert and just listening to the music. That's all. And I think we just need to find a way to encourage people to realize that they perhaps do enjoy this music because it's so wide ranging. You're just, we need to help, mm, help people find their way in what it is they would like about classical music, about what areas of the, of the repertoire mm -hmm. and the sort of subgenres they might like and therefore what concerts to be going to. So we have a responsibility as well to try and engage people, for sure. It's funny how some of those, you know, like we've just mentioned with big orchestras and things and, and the people who do sort of the movie soundtracks and everything, like kind of the big names, are, you know, you think of like Hans Zimmer, Danny Elfman, and I saw they were starting to do um, sort of packages and tutorials online mm -hmm. to sell off their kind of masterclasses. And I thought, well, this is so weird. Like, you know, these guys who, it almost annoyed me a little bit, but I was like, these guys who were like these incredible composers, or at least for biggest known composers, they've almost gone, oh, I can't do that now. Teach it? <laughs> like, as if it was a secondary option. But that's just from like a, a teaching perspective. Maybe I'm feeling that. But I thought it was so interesting how you've got these huge people who maybe movies aren't being shot right now or new work isn't coming their way. And even the guys right at the top have got to look at a different uh, in income stream. Mm, there seems to be a definite um, push towards masterclass series um, online, for sure. There certainly was in the last few years anyway, but uh, more so probably at the moment. Everyone's trying to adapt. That's just what we do, isn't it? Um, as artists, we always adapt. Um, and yeah, when we find that we're not able to work with other musicians or perform live, there's a huge part of what we do missing and we just need to find a way on a personal level to be able to engage with people. And even if that is trying to share our knowledge through masterclasses, perhaps, you know, that's one reason as well as it being an income stream, you know, it's that connection with, with people that we're missing. Absolutely. And I think having that connection and, I think once people kind of see you and believe in you, they're more likely to buy into you. Do you know what I mean? It's like some people will just like, you know, you'll go and watch the latest Quentin Tarantino movie, not because you know anything about the plot or the story, but because it's Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And I think once people get that engagement, maybe with, with classical music, mm -hmm. hopefully it will help maybe draw them in a little bit. Um, yeah, I hope so. Often when um, the BBC proms that happens every year, friends of mine that aren't musicians say, okay, Jen, what would you recommend? I don't have an answer straight off because I will look through the catalog and be thinking of that particular person in mind and what I think they will like. Mm -hmm. There's no one answer for one person because it's so wide ranging in terms of um, the styles and repertoire and the history because we have hundreds of years um, of music to be looking at here. Um, but one thing I would um, say is in terms of actually attending classical music concerts, 
although there's a bit of a debate and has been for a little while about um, whether it's overly stuffy to ask audiences to sit there in silence and people are tutting when people cough or <laughs> rattle their sweet wrappers and things. There's a lot of shushes and whatever. And knowing where to clap in the right place, people feel intimidated by that. So there's a lot to talk about that. But what's wonderful is that real time out and connection with the live musicians in a very different way to go into a gig because you know you don't have your phone on so you, you know you for a start you're switching off completely from technology um and really hopefully focusing on the sound in front of you no matter your level of understanding of it that's not important it's how you connect with it and the range of emotions that you can have through a classical music concert is really important for us all to engage because it's like when people say, oh, if, if you're sad, uh, listen to sad music because it, it's cathartic or whatever. Mm. You know, if you're listening to a symphony, if you're going to an orchestra, you have such an arc of emotions to go through that, you know, <laughs> you, it's very cathartic in lots of ways, I think. But even on a small scale level, if you have, you know, say a violinist and a piano player just as a duo concert, th th because there's only two instruments there, a classical music program from artists like that, they will make that as diverse as possible over that 45 minutes, hour and a half, whatever it is, they will be trying to have something for everything in there. So I would say, you know, go and try it and see because there'll be something that you like in there. We're not performing as a way to go, yeah, you should all love everything we play. <laughs> like, no, here is a, uh, it's our cherry pick for this evening from hundreds of years worth of music, this is what we'd like to present. And we know that some pieces will appeal to more people more than others. And that's what I love actually about, after a concert, speaking to people in the audience. That's my favorite part, it really is. I get such a buzz from it. Um, and it's really interesting to hear people's opinions on what they really um, connected with, you know? Because mm. you always think you know which pieces are gonna go down well. And then a piece that means a little less to you perhaps it's 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 slightly not filler but there's something about it you think oh that's in their program because xyz and then someone comes up to you and says that that had a real effect on them for whatever reason and it makes you stop and think you think oh it really can engage it does people. Affect people yeah absolutely i found um i guess i kind of started going to so i'm kind of fortunate to give you some background to where to where i'm from and grew up in Worcestershire was the the birthplace of uh, Edward Algar mm -hmm. and so like growing up in school kind of like every kid you could learn violin you could learn recorder I mean that was just 12 people on stage playing hot cross buns like everyone <laughs> like everyone like a 16th note out um, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but you know that was kind of what we grew up and everyone could learn a classical instrument and and a lot of people I knew did and it was great but kind of as we went into high school, um, all the music students, we were able to go on music trips and we would go to like Worcester Cathedral and we you know, watch, a, watch a recital. And I remember really struggling with it. And it was just because I was trying so hard to, to sort of like write classical music. <laughs> like <laughs> I can crack this. And it's intimidating. It is because. Yeah. You know, you don't know what to do then. Like you said, you're like, do I clap now? Was it? And you don't want to be that one clap 
and because that's the worst bit. <laughs> Everybody turns around, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a shame that we have that because I love mm-hmm. the respect that you know audiences have for the music, but that's different to people feeling intimidated. Mm. it's funny but the thing that changed it for me was um i think it was like probably again in high school or something because we we really got exposed to a lot of this stuff we were really lucky and we went to go and see they were in town for some reason the bournemouth symphony orchestra Mm -hmm. um and they did you know the star wars themes and mission impossible you know like all the big ones yeah oh my god we were just in awe of them it was so great and I remember us actually like sort of clapping and cheering and like, you know, trying to sing along to the Star Wars theme and then realising we didn't actually know what intervals were at that point. And <laughs> just completely off. To have, though, and that's the thing, it can have such an impact because it's so visual, it's quite visceral, it's, it's so colourful as well. And that's great that you've had all those experiences as well um, from where you grew up. I mean, it's unfortunately a postcode lottery, I think. For a lot of people yeah it is it's code lottery i like that expression but but that's the thing like how do you i know i mean is there a way when you've got people who grow up not in these kind of um i say like culturally rich places you know because mm-hmm. that was just li- literally our god was born here our council really wants us to have that in our blood mm-hmm. but if you don't grow up in those places how are you going to get into listening to, to classical music i mean is this the thing that's going to make classical music die? Oh, well, I hope not. But um, I think um, it's it's tricky with, as I say, the the particular, I've seen it, my, my personal experience has seen it with primary school education um, and the, the access that children will have to instruments. Um, and which is sometimes fabulous and sometimes almost non-existent. There was a really good documentary a few years ago um, called Don't Stop the Music. Um, James Rhodes, pianist, um, went out on a mission to see if the government's pledge for every child to have access to music lessons was actually happening. And he went into one school and I may misquote here, but the budget, when he asked them how much they had, it was something like, I don't know, 20 pounds or something he said, Per student, per term, per year, but for music, for the entire academic year. So they were playing on yogurt pots, you know? And he's saying, how on earth are these music teachers coping with this? How are the kids supposed to be engaged with this? You know, if they've not got the access they're being promised just because they live in a different area of the country, you know, there's got to be a quality there. Yeah. You know, especially if we are going to be trying down to break down this idea of, I hate to use the word elitism again, but I'm kind of stuck with it today. Um, <laughs> you know, of uh, of it being inaccessible to people, we have to make sure that there's equality across the board of who's having access to an instrument. There are great schemes where I used to go and teach in primary schools, and every kid had access to an instrument, but under a scheme called wider opportunities. And so it's like if you're in year five, you're going to be learning the trumpet. If you're in year six, you're going to be learning the violin, kind of thing. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Whereas I was so lucky to be, when I was at primary school, you could sort of choose which instrument you were going to learn, as long yeah, as there were yeah, enough. Same. Yeah, as long as there were enough instruments to go around in enough places, so you could choose the instrument that spoke to you. 
Whereas the kids I was teaching, I was teaching some violin students, you know, half a class at once and then the other half coming later. And it's, it's chaos, absolute chaos. <laughs> Can't like, imagine kids that. Playing, kids like poking each other with the bows up the nose and you oh. know, the, in the flute lessons, they're using the flutes as golf sticks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's chaos. But these poor kids, some of them really are interested, but that mm. in itself doesn't speak to them and so they're from the beginning they're being told you can't do what you want to do and it's putting them off you know yeah um, yeah 100%. and now they don't even have a call a lot of them, it's it's really odd like you just saying that about so you know, the golf sticks and uh <laughs> it's it, it brought something back because i i would love to say i completely learned violin as a child because my grandmother played and it inspired me and yes, that is partly true. It was also because I was kind of obsessed with like 1920s New York gangsters and they carried their Tommy guns <laughs> and violin cases. Oh yeah. There's a movie called Lady Killers like that. <laughs> oh, which looking back, it's so cringy, but I'm like, I just, <laughs> I can't even deny it. Um, <laughs> Basically, it doesn't matter what the reason is, is it? If you, it if gets you going. I was going to kind of backtrack a little bit, actually, because you, you kind of mentioned adapting and like I know yourself, like you do a lot of recording from home and that. Can you kind of maybe mm. talk a bit about how that works in your musical life and, and, and how you've had to kind of adapt through doing that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually one of my favourite places to be is in a recording studio. I absolutely love it. And when I say recording studio, that makes it sound really fancy when actually you know, it's, it's people's home recording studios. It's, you know, yeah. I work with uh, a couple of brilliant producers. They are masters at what they do. But if you walk in, it looks all sort of low key in terms of the environment. We're not talking fancy recording studios. Um, but I love being in there. Um, there's just something about it, not having an audience in front of you. Mm. For me, you know, anything, any ounce of self-consciousness is out the window and you can just, you still perform the music but you're not thinking about what you look like. And I love that. And you can fix bits if need be, so you can get the intention of the music across. But if something goes awry, I can fix it without yeah. feeling too cheaty. So I've been doing quite a lot of recording for a little while, um, whether it's for own projects or um, sometimes playlists for Spotify. I mean, I know I said <laughs> jury's out on whether I agree with Spotify as a company at the moment and the financial remuneration for artists. But um, having been in those situations and watched the producers work, luckily picked up on a few things um, of the basics of recording and the basics of mixing. So I am not massively knowledgeable at all, but I have enough knowledge to just do some stuff at home which means I've got more flexibility when working with people um so um if someone says look can we um overdub some sax on this particular project I have a little home studio set up it means I can do that and someone else can be responsible for the mastering but I know enough to be able to speak to them on a certain level and provide what they want um in my own projects um I've got a project at the moment which is taking some of my music which is for saxophone and piano. And none of us can play with our pianist at the moment and people are feeling really isolated in the practice. So a friend of mine said, well, why don't you create new backing track versions? So make them a bit more orchestral because I play violin. I can record some violin lines. I can record some flute, maybe a bit of vocals as well to round it out. So people have a backing track to play with at home. And 
people responded really well to that because they're missing that element of playing with people. Yeah. Um, so that's been a nice little project to be involved in. But I, again, having that control at home to just be able to, you know, uh, discover about recording through trial and error is really nice, actually, um, which I think will stand me in better stead on a personal level for when coming out of this, doing more work producers you just learn more and more on the job don't you and to be able to converse oh, with someone absolutely and like you said trial and error i mean like you, you record stuff and you're like oh that doesn't sound right <laughs> you're like why does that oh i need phantom power oh that's a thing and you, you go through those, everyone has to go through those stages whatever method you learn um yeah but i think because i've sort of gone more into the home recording at the moment for kind of the same reasons as you, because like this summer I was meant to be recording some EPs with people. And I was like, well, we're, we're not in the studio. And I was like, okay, well, I'm the drummer. Mm -hmm. I've got to kind of, this is on me because you guys are wait around, waiting on my drum tracks now. Um, yeah. But it's so much fun to do, isn't it? It, it is mostly, absolutely mostly <laughs> really fun and enjoy it. And the reason I sort of exhaled a bit of air there was just thinking about something else that's, but the downside of it at the moment for me is with our quartet thinking what can we do because it's going to be ages before we can rehearse again four people sitting really close together in a room um playing a wind instrument <laughs> you know that's not following any guidance whatsoever so we've been trying to record some of our repertoire records particularly the ones that sort of stay in the same tempo mostly throughout and the level of realization of what you do when you're a chamber ensemble you know you sit close together so you can hear someone's sound you hear when they're breathing so you breathe with them you tune each note as you go within nanoseconds so to record we have baritone sax player lay down the first track i'm the tenor sax player so i go next and then we build up to alto and soprano and the tuning is you know we're talking fine detail stuff here but there's particular chords where you can be bang and tune with a tuner, mm -hmm. just recording your part, but if you don't have the other parts around you, you can't adjust the temperament of the chord and stuff. And right, okay. it's just, oh, it's just, it feels so unsatisfying to me. You know, this is mm. chamber music and we're recording it stem by stem. <laughs> you know, we're trying to make it work in the best way, but it's, it's just a learning curve. People are doing it, we're doing it, but it's, it's just this whole other thing we've got to learn and it takes a while for it to get to a stage of being satisfying and that's, that's slightly demoralizing. No, it's so cool to hear that though because I, you know, like sitting in a room with a pair of headphones on, I'm like, I've got my click, I've got the backing track, you know, I'm mm -hmm. sort of, and go for drums unless there's maybe like a percussionist on the track or something, but it's so cool to hear that subtlety of how you guys like, you really have to adapt to each other and you know with that tuning um mm. but the thing and maybe you'll agree with me when you when you finally submit those stems or that track if you're not 100 percent happy with it you've still got to put your name against it and your name is printed next to that track now absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I, a, I get a buzz off it if if i'm proud of it but i'm a bit of a perfectionist and it drives some people mad <laughs> uh, <laughs> We had like a, a remote mixing session the other day, um, me and my pianist and the producer of this thing we're bringing out this week, actually a little EP of stuff. And uh, he had a great system for having a remote mixing session, 
but it was so much harder to explain what we were hearing and what we wanted um, that it's very tricky but I thought I still no matter us working in diff difficult circumstances like you say I'm still putting my name to this I'm still going to be the sort of trying to seek perfection that I was before even though it's more difficult right now <laughs> yeah yeah it happens I mean it's like you said we've all got to adapt and we've got to make it work um but right now it is what it is I mean do you think this is going to lead to kind of a permanent reinvention of a music industry or do you think it's just because we're in this temporary state of being i think there's definite scope for um permanent change um but i just hope it's on the right side of history <laughs> um and that we have good positive change out of it um whether that's you know the access for people to the music or how we present it so that idea of it um being um in a concert hall where you clap at the right time, you don't cough, etc. Whether that changes or not, I don't know, but a lot of people are talking about, well, is this the right time to fix the stuff we've been talking about for ages? For example, how we dress as classical mm. musicians. It's a huge thing that people have, you know, why should a <laughs> percussionist, a tuba player, trombonist, whatever, cello, double bass, why should they be playing in tuxedos? <laughs> <laughs> really i mean come on I mean, there's something that's really nice about revering the music in a way and have, having a sense of occasion but the idea you know playing in tales for guys is just the worst thing i hate it, I hate it. it's I, oh god no i've never done like full classical stuff but i've done sort of uh you know like the function stuff like motown Mo mm -hmm. motown bands and you got you know the, the shirts and everything and like as a drummer Two minutes into it, I'm like, I can't, I can't yeah. do this. I don't know how people do it. No, and it's, it's, it's in my humble opinion, um, and, but many people say the same thing. It's, it's outdated and there's a place for it, but I don't think it should be um, the norm necessarily anymore. I think, you know, we need to look at um, how we present our music and ourselves and what we're trying to say um there's the classic thing is it you know is it tuxedos and tails is it all black you know or are you trying to be funky by going oh let's have colored shirts and jeans to show when <laughs> like stuff <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, you feel like everything you do is wrong in terms of how you dress but i certainly find it i find it really uncomfortable to play in a fancy sort of ball gown or dress when doing a classical i don't feel like me because i never wear that stuff anyway Yes, there's a sense of occasion, as I said, but I, I want to feel like me when I'm playing and I'm just so super conscious that I'm wearing this crazy dress and some high heels and, oh, you know, there's a... Yeah. A we can talk about, and that feels like a small point, but in terms of how we're perceived as well as how we feel on stage, mm. I think it's important. No, I think it definitely is, and uh i people notice it because that's a big thing as an audience member if you're going to go to a concert hall or, or an orchestra or whatever it is anything in that classical genre how do you dress what what, what do you wear you don't want to be the person turning up in a t-shirt but then you could be overdressed because you don't want to look like you're kind of trying to be part it, oh my god it's a it's a minefield yeah and it's something that you know people have asked me before um you know 
if they're coming to a concert of mine, but they're not really concert goers, what should I wear? And that, that question blows my mind because to me, it's not even a question. It's like, we'll just rock up, you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, well, what you want. <laughs> but it gets me every time because it, it's just like this bang, this hit of people are still scared. Mm. Of doing the right thing. But um, I was hearing something the other day and I read on the radio um, about driving concerts at the moment where there's this new idea people drive up and it's not like coming through their radio or anything but they literally wind the windows down stick their heads out and watch a socially distant classic classical concert in front of them and while i think that's really innovative i just think is that a temporary thing is that something there's so much that you think what's going to stay um although the surge of orchestras within different genres i.e the metropole orchestra with jules buckley and all the sort of the ibiza prom and stuff like that where we take or the the dre album that did 2001 i don't know it was them that did it i think it was um dre album 2001 and they orchestrated it you know and with live orchestra yeah and that's happening a lot more um and that is certainly one way that's engaging uh, new audiences into thing it, thinking it's or feeling comfortable with watching an orchestra it's re- it, i don't know if you've uh as um oh, i want to say like three maybe a four piece uh like little yeah i think it's a string quartet um apocalyptica have you heard of those guys oh it's ringing the faintest of bells they're um they're kind of like a it is um like a classical um like you know obviously string quartet but they cover sort of heavy metal tunes. And so they, it's so strange. They go to download uh, or, be, you know, Sonosphere, whatever huge festival in front of like 100,000 people. And they're there on the stage, just the four of them, like really close together, um, playing, you know, these huge metal tracks and anthems that have been around 30 years. And they have no vocalists, obviously, mm-hmm. but the whole crowd sings the melody for them. And they're so engaged <laughs> and they're huge. They're huge. People love it. And they get these great festival spots because everyone knows the song. It's, it's like I said about the Star Wars thing earlier. Everyone knows it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, but this is different. This is classical. Oh, they're so clever. Look at what yeah. they've done. There's such a fine line with that stuff. I've shown, shown stuff to uh, students before um, of, I, I don't want to mention artists' names particularly, but of classical musicians that sort of move into that, exactly that kind of territory, you know, covering music from other genres. Um, and it really splits the room. Really? You know, some students are like, yeah, this is awesome. And some are cringing and dying inside. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a fine line. But yeah, what, whatever works, you know, this, everything's going to have its audience. Um, for sure. Um, but how we move forward, I hope, is just by being more open. Because everyone's had to be more open to how they consume music right now in general mm. you know i've been attending if you like in air quotes attending concerts gigs whatever you want to call them zoom gigs yeah. um and it's been a really lovely experience to be honest and has made me think more widely about how i can see music and what i might do going forward that i don't think it's just a classical music thing um but i think as long as we're all open to supporting music let's just mm-hmm. get rid of the <laughs> titles of classical jazz whatever 
and just, just music as a whole yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I hate the term classical because it infers that it's old and like classical <laughs> like you know oh it's the classic literature or the classic mythology or there's so much ingrained in that word classical and particularly when what i'm doing is mostly new music i write my own classical if i like pieces <laughs> <laughs> that, that's an oxymoron surely but it's, it's the yeah. term we use because we haven't found a better one that's interesting it's an interesting point yeah so people are calling it recital music concert music other people say no that makes it sound uppity <laughs> and yeah i've never really given the, the term much thought to be honest because i i haven't really come up against it when people are I suppose there's always different connotations for whatever genre or style you're in it and people have these preconceived notions. Um, but yeah, but it's really interesting how you, how you said about classical and, and the connotations of that particular word and what it means to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at Steve Reich, for example. I mean, you know, the classic example to cite. He is still going to be under a bracket of classical music, but it couldn't be sort of more for, for, you know, further removed from something like Debussy. Other than, you know, I, there's just a lot under that umbrella. It's, it's a lot of weight for that word to be carrying, you know, and we just need to find something better. But no one yet, I don't think, has come up with anything better. Some people suggested academic and I thought, oh, no, no, no. It's even no. worse. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, let's, let's steer away from that, shall we? <laughs> as we, um, as we kind of start to wrap up now, one thing I wanted to touch on just before we finish was um was kind of spotify and and where yeah. you're at with where you're at with spotify right now yeah it's a tough one i've i've seen spotify in the past as something that was in the background to what i did so i'll be creating music i'll be trying to um encourage sales of my albums and certain ways but as a composer the sheet music is a big thing for me making sure people have access to and can buy the sheet music mm. so the albums are more of a creative output and um having them on spotify always felt like a well it should be there or almost like a status thing like oh you're not on spotify or if you are does it make people take you more seriously there's all these questions years ago as we were starting to put music on there and it's always existed on there for a few years and now just trying to rethink where I put things because are we devaluing music? You know, there's a there's a two big hashtags at the moment, um, fixed streaming and broken record. Um, so talking about this um, lack of remuneration to musicians or at least directly to the musicians. So um, in terms of how it's affecting me right now at this moment, is with this EP release that we have this week. Um, we're gonna put it on both of our websites and it's all music that we've co-composed, um, again, under this big term of classical music. So predominantly we're pushing the sheet music sales, but my um, duo partner, my pianist, basically somehow, and it still baffles me how, Spotify is his income. Um, for years he got um, sort of scouted by someone years ago, straight out of conservatoire, um, for um, creating music for Spotify playlists. Um, and so he'll record a bunch of, you know, relaxing piano classics, this kind of thing, that really get the big hits. Um, but he also writes a lot of music in that style, but more modern. Um, so, you know, slightly Einaudi, that kind of thing, which is also very popular. 
So he amazingly makes his income from Spotify every month. That's how he makes his money, which is just baffling to me. So he's pro Spotify. I'm still very much, oh, I'm not sure. So to release an EP together at the moment when I'm particularly doubtful about whether I should be putting music out there for very little return, mm -hmm. we've got to have a compromise between the two of us there. And that's tough. But I do think it's a conversation that needs to be had very urgently and much more vocally and publicly about being fairer to pay musicians whose music is keeping their platforms alive. Mm. It's, it's interesting though because obviously you know streaming hasn't always been around and before you know it was album sales or physical sales but now for kind of the younger generations of the, you know the like you said conservatoire students or, or any kind of music students really coming out it's just the stage is quo and you just think let's put it on Spotify that's how it's going to be consumed now so I do wonder if that argument is almost dead now because the, for at least for the new generation, they don't even question it. Well, I think that's the thing, is not talking about removing those platforms, but about the remuneration being fairer to the artists who are providing the music in the first place and making sure the actual system um, works better for everyone involved. Um, because for exactly that reason, you know, the, the people on the who aren't the absolute top dogs earners of Spotify, if they start dribbling off, then you're going to get this really sort of insular type of music that you can find on Spotify. And if people are going to Spotify, then they're just not going to get that breadth of music that they should be able to find on there and can at the moment. Um, but it's just, it's, it's a huge topic um, that needs a lot more discussion. Yeah, no, it is, and I, I, maybe we should do like a separate podcast and get you and your uh, and your <laughs> and your duo partner on here. We can have kind of like a, a for and against, and I can just play devil's advocate to both of you. <laughs> yeah, that might not do well for for my working relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kill the income. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, Jen, it's been so amazing having you as a guest on the show, and. Oh giving some insight in into what's going on right now so thank you so much oh a pleasure thanks very much for having me